0: Welcome back to another edition of Industry Standard with me, the large Jew, Barry Katz. As you know, I love to start off uh, each uh, podcast with a story that sort of relates to uh, my guest. I'm really excited today about my guest, uh, who is uh, uh, Matt Williams, and not the baseball player, the prolific executive producer and main man in Hollywood. Um, so I, uh, represented, uh, a lot of, uh, comedians, uh, I still do who, uh, branch off into television and film. And, you know, in the nineties, I had a chance to represent some of the most, uh, amazing people that were working in the clubs who I thought could branch out into film and television. And, uh, you know, one of them was, as you probably know, was Dave Chappelle and the other one was was Jim Brewer, who, uh, relate to this story. And at the time, uh, in the mid nineties, I was kind of like, uh, the kind of person who didn't wait for things to happen. I wanted things to happen. I tried to make things happen. And I, um, remember well that I was tired of the development process with Dave Chappelle. And so was he, we had done like about three or four pilots, and they didn't go anywhere and at disney and i met with dave and i said i'd like to try something different i'd like to uh, fedex a letter to chris Albrecht at hbo who also started in the comedy field he was a doorman at the at the improv on 44th and 9th when he started and he moved up to be president of hbo and i said i want to reach out to him let him know that we love a deal that involved uh, a half-hour uh, scripted project, uh, hour specials, comic relief, maybe a talk show, just all-encompassing. And I knew that if I sent Chris a FedEx, he would open it, because FedExes are like emails these days. You know, no matter who you get it from, you can get it from a homeless person, you're going to open the email and say, Oh, wow, God, he lives, he lives on the street, but I'm opening it, and I'm reading this so <laughs> i send a fedex this beautiful typed letter because there aren't any computers that i'm using back then. i'm typing the letter with those typewriters that have the ball thing and the white out, and i'm going back and forth trying to make it right and i send him this beautiful letter and he calls me and he says barry thank you uh the art of letter writing is 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 a dying art and uh it's a really passionate letter and I would love to meet you and Dave and I'm going to, uh, have my, uh, business affairs person fly you both out first class, put you up at the, uh, wherever four seasons. And I'm like, first class, this is unbelievable. You know, I, I, I was flying with the chickens my whole life, you know, and, and, and so we fly out here and he, it's a wonderful meeting and he offers us the everything that I wanted on that piece of paper he offered. And I did all this stuff. I was sort of a, a rogue kind of manager at the time, even though he had an agent at the time, um, Martin Lysak and uh, a few other uh, great people. I sometimes did things without really you know, telling them as much as I should, or I just said, hey, I want to send this. To them. I didn't really go into detail because if it didn't work out, then I didn't want to look like It was a a bad thing to do. Anyway, this paid off. Chris Albrecht, I want to do it. So I called uh, Dave's agents. They were excited. Um, They started getting into uh, discussions with business affairs at HBO. Then, you know, with Jim Brewer, things were heating up and getting kind of hot because there was a, a, a an executive at NBC uh who was a, a a really wonderful person. Her name was Amy Wolpert, and she was very supportive of me and Jim Brewer, and I had showcased him, and she brought him in, and we met with Warren Littlefield in the group. And if you ever met with Warren Littlefield, who was the president of NBC, he would meet in this office and there'd be this long L-shaped couch and you'd have pitches there or do whatever. And they were like, they never fucking laughed at all. It's like they just sat and watched for his reaction. But Jim Brewer, when he took a meeting, he never took, uh, you could never get away with not laughing at Jim Brewer. And he just stood up and got right in Warren Littlefield's face. He said, what's the matter with you? What, did you have some fucking bad food this morning? Lighten up. These people need to laugh. And he starts punching pillows and wrestling himself to the ground and doing all these crazy things. And suddenly Warren started laughing. And and before I knew it, again, I had called Jim's agents and said, um, listen, I don't know to tell you this, but I just got a call from Business Affairs, and they're offering over $200,000 for Jim Brewer. And it ended up being $250,000 that they offered him. that was on the table. Dave's deal was very close to that as well at HBO. And I am on top of the world because I'm a manager in New York. You know, I'm this, you know, I I, I got nothing going on. I'm representing kids who haven't done anything in their life. Maybe I have a few people on Saturday that live uh, before this at, at the time. Uh, but nothing major, you know, it's, I was, I was a, I was a booking agent for clubs. I was booking people all over the country and I was trying to make my way. And this was the, f- one of the first times where I really had validation, like, holy shit, things are coming around. I I, I could, I might be able to make it in this business. And I am feeling great. I'm like, I remember going back to my office after hearing about both offers and how we're working on trying to close things up, and I remember leaning back in my chair and putting my feet up, and all of a sudden, the phone rings. It's late at night. You know, it's like 9. I'm the only one there, 9.30. I pick up the phone. I'm like, hey, it's Barry Katz. Hey, Barry, how you doing? Uh, this is Dean Valentine and uh, Gene Blythe calling. Now, Dean Valentine was the president of, of Disney television or Touchstone Television at the time. And Gene Blythe was uh, one of the greatest casting directors uh, and directors of development, or however you call it what he did. Uh, he was amazing. He, he, to this day, he still consults with them. They, the guy is incredible. Eye for talent. And they said, Barry, we, uh, we want to talk to you about something really, really special. I'm like, oh, great. I'm like, this is unbelievable. This is the best week of my life. And they say, Barry, uh, we want to do a home improvement spinoff. It's going to be the most expensive uh, show in television history. We're putting everything into it. We even have a guaranteed time slot after home improvement, which no one has ever given in the history of television. I'm leaning back a little bit further. I feel like my head's touching the ground from the back of the chair. I'm just like so excited. Like this is the best thing ever. I'm thinking, God, they want me to be involved in this? I haven't even done anything. This is great. What do they want from me? So I said, well, what do do I need to do? They said, oh, you don't have to do anything, Bear. All you got to do is we're going to send you uh, first-class tickets for you. I'm like, yeah, first-class again. I'm like, and who else? Dave Chappelle and Jim Brewer. I'm like, come again? They said, Dave Chappelle and Jim Brewer. We want those two to be our home improvement spinoff. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God. Uh, listen, um, guys, that's, uh, that's, that's really wonderful, but, uh, I, I, uh, I have a, um, situation going at HBO with Dave and one at NBC, uh, for Jim Brewer. No, no, you don't. You don't have that. You can't, Barry, do not sign those deals. Do not sign those deals. You have to come out and meet us. Please. I'm like, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I just, I I feel like I've gone forward sort of, I mean, I haven't closed the deals with these people. Nothing's signed yet, but I feel like if I take that meeting, it it just would lack all integrity. And I don't, I don't really feel that great about Barry all you're taking is a meeting. Don't worry about it. You got a free trip to LA. They'll have fun. It'll be wonderful. Just come. And so I called Dave and I called Jim and I said what was going on. And I, I told him I really, it was a wonderful thing, but I really didn't feel comfortable about it. It was something that I was really nervous about. And I got their agents on the line and of course their agents said, what the fuck are you talking about? Get on the fucking plane and get out there and take that meeting. That, that, this is how it's all done. Get out there. And I said, okay. So we go out and take the meeting with Dean Valentine and his, his team. And I, I believe David Kissinger was there, who's uh, a huge macha in the business. And, uh, it might have been Pete Aronson too. Uh, uh, and, It was an amazing meeting, and they walked us down to the set where you, Matt Williams, was doing home improvement and showed us the whole thing. They took us down to Matt's office, which we'll get into later, was like literally the, you could eat an omelet off every surface of the office. It was just one of the most amazing clean it it was incredible it was like it was like vacuum it was like the golden gate bridge you just start cleaning on one side go to the next and you start again it was that kind of place that was just so impressive and we get out of there and we meet with the agents and they're like listen we have to do this home improvement spinoff because the agents are thinking hey we got the package we're gonna do this we're gonna do this both this will be the biggest show ever we got the guaranteed time slot we'll go we'll do that and so, I had to call Chris Albrecht and had to call NBC, and that was uh, devastating. Um, I don't think Chris Albrecht talked to me for like five years. And, uh, but as usual, talent rules, and hopefully people get over things that, uh, and they have to realize that sometimes your artists, They're the presidents of their careers, and you're basically the cabinet, and that's the way it is. So to make a long story longer, and this is the longest cold open history, but it's a very incredible story, and so it shall be told. We start developing the show, which is called Buddies, with Matt Williams and his team, Carmen Finestra and uh, David McFazian. We have a great time, a great, great time developing it. It's wonderful. Um, it's very collaborative. They allowed me to actually be some kind of producer on the show, which Matt hadn't done in a long time because of various circumstances in his life that had happened, which we'll talk about later. And he trusted me to be there, and he treated me like I belonged, and he treated me like I, I was a producer when technically I was just another you know, schlub probably in the business trying to make it. And everything was going wonderfully well. And when you're close to a project and you're working on it and the set is wonderful and the employees and everybody there is incredible, you feel like you're doing the greatest work in the world. And we were incredibly happy and we shot one show. We shot a, we shot our pilot, obviously, but we didn't have to worry about it because we were already picked up. We shot another show, another show. I believe we shot, like, six shows before we were ready to launch after Home Improvement. So we're shooting, like, our sixth or seventh show and the show is scheduled to air um, the following Wednesday night. There are full-page ads in TV Guide with Dave Chappelle's picture, Jim Brewer's picture, it's there's more press than anything I've ever seen in my life. It's incredible how much Disney and, a- and ABC put into this. Tim Allen was involved. He was some kind of producer and he had the uh, participation in it. He was pushing it. It was incredible because you know, he, Tim had al- had had allowed these guys to be a guest shot on one of their shows to sort of launch it. All was in the cards. Jim and Dave Chappelle fly in their families on Tuesday night because the next night they're going to stay over, they're going to watch the show at a location, and it's going to be one of the biggest celebrations ever. So I'm in Jim's dressing room after the show, and, um, his family, they're hugging, they're high-fiving, the mom is so excited, everybody's around, it's just incredible in his dressing room, I just come from Dave's, and I get a, a page comes in the uh, the dressing room and says, Barry, I have a phone call, I'm going to transfer it here to Jim's dressing room, is that okay? I said, sure, whatever. I pick up the phone. It's by the bathroom. I go in the bathroom. And I sort of close the door. And as I pick up the phone, I'm looking out at the scene of Jim and his family hugging and kissing and high fiving and congratulations. I'm like, hello. Hi, Barry. It's Debbie Klein. Now, Debbie Klein is a uh, tremendous attorney. She represents Jim Carrey, Will Ferrell, uh, you know, so many different people. And at the time, uh, she was representing me and I had, uh, put uh uh, Dave Chappelle not Dave Chappelle Jim Brewer with her so what's up Dev it's a great night today I'm so excited and we're we're going on tomorrow thank you for calling and 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 it's so nice of you to call how thoughtful of you she's like Barry um I don't know how to tell you this but um they're firing Jim they're pulling the show and it's not going to air tomorrow night and they're recasting I'm like, Dev, come on, man, it's it's not April Fools. This is this is a great night. Stop fucking around. This is great. Barry, um they're firing Jim. It's over. And they're pulling the plug and I'm sorry. Um, I gotta go. Bye. And I hang up the phone and I look out at the scene of Jim and hugging and laughing with his family and I go back out there and I say Jim uh do you mind if I talk to you alone uh without your family he said sure no problem and they leave and he sits down on the bed and I pull up a chair and I say Jim I don't know how to tell you this but um I just uh, got the call from Debbie Klein and um they're firing you um, they're taking you off the show and they're going to recast. And I'm, 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 I'm so sorry. If there's anything I can do, just tell me, cause, uh, this is not only the worst moment in your career, but this is the worst moment in my career. And I, I feel like it's my job as your manager to protect you. And I feel like I feel like I failed you and I, I, anything I can do. And it was the first time in my life as I remember where I'm across from a man who's crying in front of me because of this business and had everything ahead of him. now he has to go and tell all his friends and his family who are there that it's over And then I had to tell Dave, which was even more difficult because he believed in Jim so much and he believed in Matt Williams and his team so much, and he couldn't believe that there was no warning. He couldn't believe that that a network didn't say, hey, listen, we're thinking of doing this. Let's give Jim some coaching or let's do this or let's try to change that. And Dave left and he said, I'm not available. I don't want to take any meetings. I don't want to meet anybody. I'm not going to recast. Tell them I don't want to do this show. I'm out. And again, I apologize to Dave. And Matt Williams called me and said, Uh Barry, Barry, um, will you get Dave in here? I want to set up a meeting with him. And I said, uh... I said, I'll try, but, and I did try. And finally, Dave agreed to come into a meeting at your office with your team. <clears throat> and you guys met with, uh, him and told him that it was about, uh, the acting. And, um, you had said to Dave that you felt that the show could be successful with Jim Brewer, but you felt that, with another actor it could go to syndication and it could be a huge hit and it was worth risking the millions of dollars that had already been spent on the show to do that and Dave went back and forth with you and at the end of the meeting if I'm not mistaken you said look Dave I tell you what I'm gonna make a little bet with you okay If this show isn't a hit, and if this show is canceled by the end of the year, I'll write you a check for $10,000. But if it isn't, we'll celebrate, and you don't have to do anything for me. So Dave agreed to do the show. We recast, went on the air, unfortunately was panned, it was canceled after 13 episodes, And about a month later, Dave Chappelle came in my office, walked in, closed the door, said, Barry, man, I got something to show you. I said, what is it? Pulled out his wallet, took out a check for $10,000, signed by my guest today, Matt Williams. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. So just go to BarryKatz.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever.
1: Here we go in three, two... We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with barricades and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water.
0: I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking.
1: Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on.
0: What? Now about the air! All right, I'm very excited today. Uh, My guest today Uh, started off as a writer on The Cosby Show, moved on to a different world, created Roseanne and Home Improvement, and also co-created Different World, produced huge hit movies like What Women Want. There's so much to talk about, but I'm so glad he's here. Please welcome my guest today, Matt Williams.
1: <laughs> Thank you, Barry.
0: So excited to have you here. I have so much to cover because uh, you uh, are a big part of my life and a big part of America and the world's life. So let's just start. Uh, for those of you who aren't watching this and are listening, Matt Williams, uh, a Caucasian man, yet his first job in television is on an African-American show. Tell me how that happened. Tell me, tell me how you started uh, in the business, like what led to that point, and then how that happened.
1: I, I went to New York uh, having been a theater major. I got all my degrees in theater, and I went there to act and direct plays, and I was, I was knocking around. I knew I wanted to um, tell stories primarily, so I was, I was supporting myself as an actor. I was directing, and then in order to have something to direct, I couldn't afford royalties because I had no money. I was living in one room you know, with a hot plate. So I thought, I
0: remember this, there's this comic Maranzio Vance. He says, I live in a studio apartment, which means I'm one room away from being homeless. <laughs> That's exactly
1: <laughs> right. And I even had to lie that I had a job in order to get that studio apartment at the time because they didn't want to give it to an actor or a director. But I started writing to have something to direct. And I started writing some one act plays. I wrote a full length play. It went on. It played the Kennedy Center. It got published. But I thought, if I'm serious about this writing stuff, I better write some one act plays. And hone my craft, and every time I wrote a one act play, it ended up being funny.
0: How do you learn how to write a one act play for those of us in our audience? Because I,
1: a lot of people don't know this. Like, well, it's different have,
0: from half hour. Or... No, it's
1: not really. And I didn't know, but I was absolutely grooming myself to be a showrunner in half hour because all my theater training. Was I? I I know stage combat. I can hang lights. I can sew costumes. I've done summer stock. I was the transportation captain while acting in three of the plays. So your ten thousand hours, I got that early on. So I knew every aspect of production, and so I I had been trained as an actor. I'd been trained as a director. But I literally went out and read every single book I could find about dramatic structure. What makes a story work? How does this story?
0: Do you remember some of the books for our audience? Absolutely.
1: A guy named Kenneth Rowe, this is, you won't even find this book, it's out of print. Kenneth Rowe was Arthur Miller's playwriting teacher. And he wrote a terrible titled book that is brilliant called Write That Play. And he was the one that I went, oh, I see, this is how stories work. Leos Agri's book. Uh, dramatic structure. I I went through them all, but Kenneth Rowe especially, there's two chapters in his book that changed my life because I, I go, oh, I see what drives a story. I know there's a major dramatic question established at the beginning, and you wait the whole play to answer that question. So I started...
0: What were the chapters' names, just so we know what they were that changed your life? Do you remember?
1: I don't remember offhand. It was primarily what he drove home is what makes a story work. The two pistons that drive a story are discoveries and decisions. I walk into the room, I discover Barry, and he's standing here with my wife, naked. I've got to make a decision. Do I punch my So wife? do I. <laughs> <laughs> so do you. Do I punch him in the face? Do I throw my wife out the window? Do I turn around and walk out, or do, what do I do? My decision is going to lead to the next thing. So, I, so that, that, that throughout, every story has a major dramatic question.
0: I want you to know that I can guarantee you that the majority of the people listening here and even the majority of the people who are aspiring to be writers or who are comedians who want to write their first thing, I can guarantee that most of them don't know what you just said because that's that's an incredible revelation because we think that because we're funny or because artists are funny, they think, hey well, I do it on stage, I make it happen there, I can make it happen here, but it's a different muscle.
1: Totally. You're, it's narrative drive. And so back to The Cosby Show, I, I honed my craft by writing these one-act plays. A, a woman named Lou Moore said, I think these plays are really funny. I think we can get an HBO special. My first trip to L.A., I'm in the Valley at the Sportsman's Lodge, and I'm in Hollywood, you know, <laughs> and met with uh, HBO, but I met Jay Sandridge, phenomenal yeah. director of half Hour Yes. And Jay said, these plays are really funny. Uh, it didn't come together. They were going to do uh, like a two-hour special of, of these plays. And it never came together. But lo and behold, I'm off. I'm acting. I'm directing plays. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm supporting myself. And then I get a call literally right before the Cosby Show premiered. And they said, Jay Sandridge handed us all your one-act plays. We think they're really funny. Would you come in for an interview? And I said, sure. Sure. And I sat down with Tom Warner, and he he's all nervous because literally they had fired everyone but one writer. Bill fired all the writers because he didn't want joke writers. He hated that Bobbida Bing type humor. He wanted real behavior. He wanted relationship. So I sat down with Tom, and he says, uh, 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 do you think you can write television? And I said, I don't have any idea, if I can. He says, but, uh, but are you funny? And I said, not necessarily. <laughs> And he goes, well, uh, do you th- do you think you can do this? And I said, I have no idea. I said, I'll tell you what I do. I know how stories work. And if the characters are funny, I can write them funny. But I'm not a joke writer. I can't sit and construct a joke. But I can. I know how to construct a story. What's
0: interesting is Tom Werner, by the way, uh, Tom Werner and Marcy Carsey, they ran Carsey Werner, one of the most successful uh, teams. Ever. And they started as network executives and they... Did, you know, Cosby, uh, Roseanne, Third Rock, 70s show, I mean, it, it, Sybil, it's on and on and on, Grace Under Fire. Um, and what's weird is they always had this thing uh, in, in Kabbalah, you'd call it probably your tikkun, which means that there's something in a past life that you haven't mastered yet that keeps coming back to you. And it always seemed, when I when I was around them, that every show that they were on, the lead person was completely just destroying their lives, you know, and there was some, they, they just, they never seemed to work with an easy person, an easy creative person. There was always a person that was more difficult. Not, they're not, you know, going to work every day saying, I'm going to be difficult, but they just were creatively powerful people. And Cosby was the kind of person, the stories were uh when I was, uh, you know uh, going back during that time and thinking of the stories of having people on the show or casting that he was the kind of guy that people would write a script and they'd say listen uh, bill we got to give these notes i'll fix it on the floor mm-hmm. well what do you mean you'll fix it on the floor we have young kids we have pe- no i'll fix it on the floor don't worry and he would just go and the actors would have to react and the writers were just sitting there feeling hopeless
1: a, a lot of that was true early on. And then what we'd learned was how to write Bill. And when Bill read the one acts that I sent in, he went, I like this. These are funny. He says, and there are no jokes because <laughs> we were in Bill's office, his dressing room one day, the cigar, the cappuccino, and he took his tennis shoe off and he held it up in the air. And he said, boys, I'd rather have you call this a tennis shoe than make a joke about it. He said, just, he says, you write characters. And he said, there's no color on this show. We're writing character, not color, okay? And he his rule was find truthful, authentic human behavior, and then we'll exaggerate it to make it funny. So I kind of talk about a perfect match. I'm not a joke writer. If it sounded like a joke, if it sounded to Bill like structure, structure, punch, that was the first thing he threw out. That's the first thing he threw out. And then when, when people used to read a, a Cosby show script, they would read and go, this ain't funny because a typical Cosby scene was Rudy would have her hand in the bottom of a cereal uh, box looking for the toy. And Bill would walk in with this child's hand in a cereal box and he'd just stare at her and the audience would start laughing and she'd look up at him and they'd laugh some more. And then he would say something like "Um, enjoying your breakfast. (laughs) Now that's not a, that's not a joke, but the basic premise of Cosby show is How do you live with all these brain-dead children? Because it was, I'm smarter than... You kind of went
0: into a little Cosby there. which was kind (laughs) of nice. It was a partial impression of Cosby there.
1: Well, it is. And these are brain-dead children. I expect you to say Jell-O pudding (laughs) after that. Jell-O pudding. (laughs) But with Bill, so I I got it. He goes, find what's human, find what's real, and write, you know, really extreme attitudes. And so when... uh, Uh, Carsey Werner hired me. It was like the shortest minimalist contract you could possibly have. It was six weeks and we're going to pay you $2 a week and you just don't do anything but shut up and sit in the corner. But what's amazing is that, so you go into your first
0: interview for a television show with the guy who's the head of the studio and this is a rarity. He's more nervous than you are.
1: Well, I think it's because they went, holy hell. None of these people, they're writing sitcoms. Bill doesn't want sitcom writing. How many people had he fired before you got there? Uh, he had fired the head writer and probably four or five others. And so they were scraping the bottom of the barrel, so I got hired. <laughs> so, But it really was because vo- he had such a voice. And here's how Bill would work. He would come in. This is a true story. He'd say, boys, take out your notepads. He goes, here's a story. You ready? He said, this is it he goes Rudy can't find her sock he slapped his hands together he could write the shit out of it <laughs> <laughs> and so we're all looking at each other and go uh, and then we we had to go back John Marcus and Carmen Finestra and I and later Gary Cotton go Rudy can't find her sock now let's let's translate <laughs> that in bill ease what does that mean what bill wants to do ah we got it bill wants to go from room to room and find every drawer open and he can look at these drawers and, you know, and he he can react. He can just react to this. And then, you know, you're going to build up to a scene about Rudy and why that sock was so important to her. So find human behavior and 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 just run with it.
0: How, just just for your perspective, because I think it's important for the stand up listening and the people in comedy who might be listening. How do you think Bill knew this, instinctually knew that this is how it was going to be successful? Because you can just imagine the network getting the draft and the president of the network at the time looking at it and saying, what are we going to do here? This doesn't fun. How did he instinctually know? You know, you read all these books, you read these books to change your life. How did he know that That was what was going to work, and it was going to be a different kind of philosophy than any other sitcom on television, and it was going to work. He was going against the grain. How
1: did he know? Because Bill told me a story that when he first got to New York, he was a baby stand up, right? He went to club to club to club, and he saw this one doing political, and this one doing racial, and this one doing this kind of comedy, and he went, Okay, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. And he's and think think of what he did, Fat Albert. He drew from his childhood. He it always started with character, not with concept. Started with character, and he knows if the hey hey, hey. everybody knows Fat Albert, right? So he would he he his whole stand up uh, routine and the HBO special that Tom and Marcy saw with Bill, where he's talking about living with these kids, everything came from. Every story in the Cosby show came from a true life incident. Guess what happened? I wrote an episode called Claire's toe. Bill came back one day from vacation and he said, you know what? I, the damnedest thing happened. My wife broke her little toe, stubbed it on a table, but she bought a new pair of shoes for this opening. And there was no way she was not going to wear those shoes. He said, so I watched my wife stuff a broken toe into a new pair of shoes and grit her teeth and limp all night because she was going to wear those shoes. <laughs> Well, okay, you go. Okay, that's a, that's that's real human behavior. Now let's let's find a story for that and put that you know in, into motion.
0: That's tremendous. <laughs> so, so it's incredible to me that your first job in the business is you know you're talking arguably one of the greatest comedians of all time. If he's not number one, he's certainly number two or three. And so and so you get to work with this guy and your first thing and you survive. You're there for like three or four years while people are getting fired left and right around you, yet you're not nervous, you're not walking on eggshells, and do you just believe in yourself that much that you know that you're going to, you know, always get get a job no matter what? You just at this point you realize, hey, I've I've survived here and I'm not
1: worried about anything. I guess that's true because I thought I can always go back to off, off Broadway and and direct a uh, you know a, a, a bad avant garde play in somebody's basement. You know, I always <laughs> yeah for one that.
0: one thousandth of what you're making on the Cosby. <laughs> I
1: know, but I'll tell you. So I'll, you
0: start making money. You got you know you got money in your bank account now, and it's yeah. like from nothing. You go from a playwright who's living in a studio apartment, and now if you'll oblige me, you, you know you don't have to say specifically, but. You're making the kind of money now that it's like crazy because of the unions, the way they right. are and what you pay. Even as a minimum wage writer, back then you are probably making at least $3,000 a week or something like that. Right. What, what did you do? Were you the kind of guy who stayed in your studio apartment or did you just uh... – I did.
1: I, I will tell you this honestly, and I've, I've been very fortunate and have made a lot of money in this industry. any time I've ever sat out and thought, boy, this is going to make me a lot of money, it usually failed. I just write stories, and if people like those stories. Now, it changes through the years because of demographics and the fragmentation of TV and all that. Because uh, with Cosby, I'm going to tell you a story I've told a, a few times, but it's, it's the key to why I've been successful in television. I, I promise you, this was the epiphany. This was the moment that changed my life. I was standing next to Bill. It was probably the, my second or third, third month on the job. I'm, I'm standing next to Bill Cosby at a run-through. And we're watching a scene between Rudy and Theo. And they're in there and they're doing a scene. And all of a sudden I feel this elbow in my ribs. And I look over and it's Bill. And he leans over and he's got his cigar and he goes, Hey man, if you were sitting at home right now, wouldn't you want to be a part of this family? And I went, there's the, there's his genius. That's the key to his success. And so from that point on, and I I want to talk about buddies but from that point on, I always went, oh, we get to spend time with these people. We get to pull up a chair around Roseanne's kitchen table and listen to the stories. We get invited, and they get invited in our house, and it's that notion of being part of this family, and I went, that's, that's his genius, because you really enjoyed hanging out at the Cosby house, and that, as opposed to Watch us be funny. We're coming at you with lots of jokes. Watch this, because at the end of the day, jokes are wonderful. I appreciate joke writers. But at the end of the day, it's the characters. When you think about Mary Tyler Moore, you think about Ted Knight and Lou and Mary and Rhoda and Phyllis. You think, I don't know how many of jokes you can recall, but you know what those who those characters were. You knew their point of view.
0: Absolutely. So, and then, uh, you know, obviously you... Uh go into a different world, and you are involved in co-creating that as well, which was a Cosby kind of spin-off show. Um, and that show went how many episodes? I mean, you weren't involved with all of them. But how- no,
1: it, it, it went seven years or so. Seven it, years. It went, so. Went, so you go
0: from one show that goes to syndication, which just for our audience, syndication normally means you do 100 episodes and it gets sold into that back then that 7 to 8 o'clock slot in your local um market um and for hundreds of millions of dollars and everybody buys private jets and and doesn't live in studio apartments uh <laughs> and so you go into a different world your next show <laughs> you go create that goes into syndication so you can do no wrong you're like everything's going your way Everything is going your way. You're like the hottest guy in town. And Roseanne does The Tonight Show about a month apart from Louis Anderson. A month later, the way the world worked back then, you did The the Tonight Show. And literally, you were on tour in 5,000-seat arenas. And you're meeting for your own television show. And you, a very prepared and very, very strong person when it comes to things, you got you met with Roseanne, she decided to work with you, but before the show went on the air, talk about 10,000 hours, I believe you spent an enormous amount of time with her. Uh, and so, take us through the process of meeting a young Roseanne for the first time, it was just a club comic, just done her first Tonight Show, to the point where you got to the pilot episode of Roseanne.
1: What happened is after three years of being on the Cosby show, I went to Tom and Marcy and I said, you know, this is great. Number one show. And all." I said, but I'm not getting stronger as a writer. Because I'm only exercising the same muscle, I'm doing the story muscle, and if I'm going to be a better writer, I need to I, I need to do other things because I know Carmen's going to fill in at that moment and John's going to fill in that moment. So Tom and Marcy said, "We'll do anything you want to do. What do you want to do? You want to write a movie?
0: Did you have an overall deal with them? No, at that point?
1: they just said you. I was on on the Cosby Show because this is what's odd about Tom
0: and Marcy here, <laughs> and this is what I think is admirable about this. And I, I had heard this, but I wasn't sure. Mm-hmm. When you're an employer, it doesn't matter where you are. If you, you, you're in a law firm in, in Indiana or in Washington, you have a whole foods and you have your whole group of people. If you have somebody that's valuable, that's kicking ass in a place where people are dropping like flies, you never want to, you never want to take that person out of that. But here you went to them and they said, you know what? We believe in you. Whatever you want to do, we know it'll hurt this other thing by taking you out, but we want to service you as a creative force because we know that you're going to take it to the next level.
1: That's and they, and they were very supportive, and they said, anything you want to do. And I said, well, I've got some movie ideas. I've got this idea for a TV series based on my wife's best friend in Detroit, and she was telling me these stories of these three women that worked in a factory. And this is all from real life again. One was married with kids, one was divorced with a kid, and one was single. And she said the amazing thing was the support system that they had in place, that these women would meet at Dunkin' Donuts and they had babysit each other's kids. And I thought, well, I came from a blue-collar town in southern Indiana. I know I grew up in a blue-collar family. I I know this world. And so I went to Tom and Marcy and I said, "Um, I've got this idea about these three women, an ensemble, half hour, these three women that work in a factory and kind of support each other and one of them's married. And that was the original concept. And they go, we love it. We love it, and then they came back and said, "We've got someone to pitch to you, Roseanne." And I, I said, "I did. I had no idea who she was." They said, "She's stand up, but you should, you should watch her because we think she could play the married woman of the three women in the series." And I went, "Sure." And I'm pretty, golly shucks. Let's roll up our sleeves, get a barn, and put on a show, okay? <laughs> and uh, so they, so you see right there where the problem begins we've got an actor for your show and you go to the talent and say we've got a writer for your show okay and tom and marcy are two of the best and most honorable people in the business they were great i can't imagine anyone better to help me launch a career right so we we started developing. Take uh, me
0: to your first meeting with Roseanne. Uh, and th-
1: my very first meeting was at Karen Mandebach's house in San Luis. Karen Ma-
0: Mandebach was the uh, vice president of the company at the time, and eventually the company became uh, Carcy Werner Mandebach. Uh, but at the time, she was just their head person. Head
1: of production, their, yeah. So it was at her house in the backyard. I got there early, as I tend to always be early, and I, I'm waiting. Like and, today. Like today, and uh, it's production habits, you know. And uh, so I'm in the backyard, and we're waiting. And then Roseanne came, and she sat down next to me. I'd never met her, you know. I'd seen her stand up, and we and we sat down, and uh, some small talk or something. And God, she turned to me and squinted her eyes, and she goes, "I'm a witch." And I went, yeah, well, you know, every, I ain't fucking kidding. I have powers. <laughs> that was the first meeting. And I looked and I'm going, uh, well, oh, okay. <laughs> and and then she told the story that's in her book about being hit by a car and dying. And, she's, and she was dragged under this car. And I guess she was pronounced legally dead for a, I don't know how many seconds or minutes or whatever. And she says, I went down to a place, and when I came back, I knew I had fucking powers. And that was the first meeting.
0: So you get in your car, you drive off. Are you saying to yourself, I can't wait to work with this person? Now, this is because this is one of those things, Matt, that I wanted to talk to you about. Because you were always a guy who didn't do things for the money didn't do things for the th- you did things based on your heart and and what you believed in and what you wanted and you worked with who you wanted to work with and if you didn't like it you walk but this was one time where you get in your car and you neglect your instincts and you and you and you and you, and you go away from what your gut is telling you you could have done anything you wanted you could have hired anyone you wanted, you were powerful, you'd just done two syndicated shows, and you had your own idea. You meet with a person, she says, I'm a witch, and I have powers. After you're working with Dr. Cosby, why did you move forward and say, this is going to be heaven on earth?
1: It's funny, I've never been asked that. A lot of it is out of loyalty to Tom and Marcy to be honest, because they gave me my first job in TV. They were there through different world. They didn't say, Matt you have to stay on Cosby. Matt, whatever you want to do. I had very consciously set out a plan for myself. I knew I wanted to create. I, I still have the yellow pad because I I, I visualize and I, I think ten, five years out what I want to do. I knew I wanted my own production company. And one of my personal goals was to create two top ten shows. That was something I had locked in that first season of Cosby. And there was an instinct here. And here's the true story, true Hollywood story, how the whole focus of the sitcom shifted. And this isn't Hollywood bullshit. This is a true story. We're developing. I'm writing. We're, I'm, you know, we're talking about the women in the factory and all of this. And I saw an episode of Moonlighting. I get chills when I think about this because this is fortuitous. And I saw this guy on Moonlighting, this big burly guy. And the episode was a reverse Cinderella where he lost his shoe. And I went. I called Karen Mandebach and I said, I don't know who this actor is. I've never seen him before, but that is Roseanne's husband. That has to be. And she says, no, she says, I've already found him. And I said, no, I promise you, I don't know this guy's name, but that has to be Roseanne's husband. She says, I've already got the actor. He's a Shakespearean actor. He's down in San Diego doing a play in, in, in San Diego. And so I called Tom and I said, I don't know this actor's name. Find out who this guy is that was on Moonlighting last night. Come this is back. before IMDb. Yeah, yes. And sure enough, she had seen John Goodman doing a Shakespearean play. I had watched John Goodman on Moonlight. We were talking about the same person <laughs> and totally unbeknownst. to him. And we go, are you kidding me? And I said, literally everything inside you. I'm pretty instinctive. I went, this has to be so. Flash forward, we get John to leave his play to come up for a day. Roseanne is sitting in um, in, in, a, in a you know a conference room or something. She's sitting at the table, and we're kind of waiting. And we, I've written some audition scenes. And John Goodman walks in, and he stops and he looks at her, and she looked up at him, and she goes, "What the fuck are you looking at?" He says, "Move your fat ass," and sat down next to her. <laughs> and God's truth. And they started talking and bantering, and Tom and Marcy and I are there, and I went, holy shit, this is like they've been married for 15 <laughs> years. So all their instincts, and afterwards, and they read the scenes, and John, being John Goodman, one of the most brilliant actors in, in the history of TV and film, I mean, one of the greatest human but beings. But also
0: them, living in a studio apartment at the time. Living in a
1: studio apartment at the time. And afterwards, Tom and Marcy and Karen and I looked at each other and go, holy shit, you cannot write that kind of chemistry. You can't write that. That is. And Tom and Marcy, being very smart people, said, that's the center of the show. That has to be. It can't be an ensemble of three women. That's the center of the show. And so that's when we, you know, we uh, reconceived. I reworked and we focused on that being the central relationship in the series. And that... That is, I am convinced the reason Roseanne was so successful is because of John Goodman. Because very early on, we knew Roseanne was going to be hard to take. Some people would be put off, especially men by her. And John Goodman being, if you watch the pilot, he's a romantic. He's talking about, you know, he's, when they retire, they're going to be on that boat. And I, and I very consciously said to Tom and Marcy, if, if, The audience sees Roseanne through John's eyes. We've got a hit because he's so in love with her. And Roseanne did have a funny line. She says, the reason the show was successful is because it proves that fat people fuck. (laughs) (laughs) But that whole notion of Dan being so in love with Roseanne and they could fight and they could do all these things. That was that's why people tuned in.
0: And then there was Mike and Molly. Anyway. (laughs) 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 Anyway, so so. All right, so you're going forward with the show. You shoot the pilot. Do you know in your heart the show is going to be a hit?
1: Without a doubt. There was no, there was not a question it was going to be a hit. So then it gets picked up. It's on the schedule. And
0: tell me all of a sudden the wonderful, bright, world of matt williams where everything goes right and everything has gone perfectly well it all falls apart i, I
1: don't even have to tell stories because they're legendary and everyone knows the roseanne stories but they don't
0: know the stories when you're there
1: but what happened was it was it was i wrote the she i wrote the pilot matt didn't have anything to do with it I. it's all mine everything is mine I, you know i need all the credit i want the creative by credit uh, uh, this is all based on me. He ripped off my stand up. And I, I think we actually went to the WGA and they, they said, are you kidding me? But this, well, this won't even be considered for arbitration because I I spent six months with Tom and Marcy developing this ensemble piece about these three women in the factory who ended up becoming Laurie Medcalf and Crystal, the other character. So that from that moment on, there was there was whose show is it? Right. And we knew early on from the
0: first episode uh, or, or uh,
1: after the pilot was shot, before we began the first episode, it was change the created by credit from her perspective. I want that. I want the created by credit. Did she want, want to share credit. it with you or she wanted she it alone? She wanted it. And and Tom and Marcy, being honorable people, came to me and they said, you know, she wants a credit, but this this was your idea. We brought her in, and to their credit, now look, their producers they did say we've got a writer for your show, and they did say to me we've got an actress for your show. So it was set up from the beginning as whose show is it?
0: But this is where I'm going to interject here, yeah. and and I think that uh, it's it's going to be very odd talking about this, but I think it's important, and I've been in the I've been the center of this many many times, right. So there's, there's two ways it's going to go uh, normally when you have a, a really incredible creator, writer, and a really incredible comedian. One way it's going to go is the Phil Rosenthal way with Ray Romano, where Phil goes off, he writes the show, and they say to Ray, look, you haven't done anything. You're making $50,000 for the pilot and that's applied to the series if it goes. You're probably making 25000 an episode. You're not in this world. Unfortunately, you're fired from the table read of, um, of news radio and replaced with Joe Rogan. We know you want to do television. This is the deal. You're, it's going to be based on the stand-up of. And it's going to be created by Phil Rosenthal. And then there's the other side of the coin, like the Peter Tolan side of the coin, let's say, who talks to Dennis Leary and says, look, Dennis, you've never had a show on television, but you're a big guy. We're going to get together and we're going to take your ideas and my ideas and we're going to write it together. Even if I go off in a bungalow and write it, I'm going to send you the pages, you're going to make notes, and at the end, when we submit the script, it's going to say, written by Dennis Leary and Peter Tolan. And for those of you who don't know, the way the Writers Guild works is that if your name is on the script that's submitted, you automatically get the created by credit. You can even be in a situation where it says, written by Matt Williams, story by Roseanne and Matt Williams, and Roseanne will get the created by credit with Matt Williams. So as a showrunner... Whether showrunners want to admit it or not, like yourself or executive producers, they have a choice early on, whether they have an idea or not. They can collaborate and share a created by credit or they can not. And normally when you're working with a young comic who's never done anything before, as a business person and your whole team, your creative team is saying, Hey look, you know, you're you know, you've done Cosby, you've done a different world this You should push to have that, and the comedian should just be happy getting their series fee and maybe a based on the stand-up of. So this is a place where I do believe that you did have a choice, but I don't believe it would have made any difference anyway.
1: It would not. I'll give you an example, and then I'll come back to that. I'm working with George Lopez right now. I pitched, and David McFadden, we pitched George a concept. And I said to George, but I don't, I said, here's the concept. And I said, but I don't know if I can write your voice. And he says, well, I'm going to write it with you. And I said, great. So this one, there's no question. George is in the room with David and myself every day writing. We are bouncing back and forth, changing characters. He's writing. He should, he's going to, of course, he's going to get a creative by credit because he's actually writing the script. The difference is when you have uh, a concept of three women with a factory and one's married and kids and all of this, and then you bring a voice into it. And believe me, this show would not. Did I, did I, I'll give you an example. Perfect example. I wrote the first draft of Roseanne pilot and my premise statement that for me in guiding what is the through line of the pilot was uh, inspired by Roseanne standup. A woman has to be all things to all people. Okay? So a man can just be the guy. I'm a truck driver. I'm a carpenter. But a woman has to be chauffeur, shrink, cook, uh, you know, Madonna, uh, uh, all these things. The mother, the psychiatrist in the family. She's got to be all things to all people. Tom and Marcy and Karen read the first draft and they go, you know what? We love the world. We love the care, But... Roseanne feels like a harried housewife this is just a woman who's overwhelmed with life and they were absolutely right so I went back I looked at her stand-up and this is all from Roseanne and went oh it can't just be I'm I'm all things to all people that's too general I am the domestic goddess right so in when I went back and did a rewrite
0: Roseanne's first tonight show the The tagline and the point of view was that she was a domestic goddess.
1: So what I did is I went back and took three weeks and did a rewrite with the premise being I should be ruling the universe because I have all the answers. And if the, the and basically. So you see what that does? That makes your protagonist proactive as opposed to reactive because I had a. And it was my fault. I had written her as a reactive point-of-view character. She's overwhelmed with all she has to do. As opposed to, all you fuckers are stupid. If you just listen to me, the universe will run correctly. That's a very proactive point-of-view character. That's a proactive protagonist. And that was the rewrite that all of a sudden then the script came. But that was Tom, Marcy, and Karen looking at me and giving me that note.
0: So you're going, there's a lot of tension on the set. The original writers, you had a lot of brilliant people who have gone on to do yep. a lot of things. Talk just just mention a few names of people who have gone on to do great things who were writers on that first well, season. Well Danny
1: Jacobson was our punch up guy and he went on to create Mad About You. That's right. Uh, David McFadden, who's been with me since Roseanne and, and a partner at Wind Dancer. And um, uh, oh gosh, I can't even remember who all else that, that first season. It was
0: now I remember watching Roseanne um, do an interview on um, the Rosie O'Donnell, um, Oprah network show, which I, I actually loved that interview show that she did. Uh, I, it blew me away and there was an episode with Roseanne and this is what really, I, I I was riveted and Rosie asked her about the pilot of Roseanne and Rosie had said that, uh, to Roseanne, well, what were you thinking after the pilot? And she said, I went home And I took a yellow pad of paper, and I wrote down all the names of all the people that I was going to fire when I went to number one. And when the show went to number one, I fired every one of them. And I was
1: number one. (laughs) I was the first one. Thank you, Lord.
0: (laughs) And, uh, okay, so... We got a lot of talk, we got we don't have a lot of time, but I just want to just really go through a few things here. So, you go through that, but you're still a creator and for those of you who don't know, when you got that created by credit, somebody can fire you and you're still getting paid for history in perpetuity. You're still getting checks from Roseanne, aren't you? Oh yeah. <laughs> so now you're 3 for 3. Ted Williams is in the Hall of Fame. He failed six out of ten times. You're three for three. So, uh, you produce another show, Carol and Company, which doesn't go the distance. And, um,
1: which is interesting because it was Carol and it was, uh, um, Carol Burnett. Carol Burnett. And I think we were in the top 25 shows in our ratings and they, and it was canceled. And you go today like you were saying in the today's world it would have been a hit yeah but again that's not not any excuse so but. you
0: get so, so you're here you are you work with cosby you're like the spin-off of a different world you work with roseanne you're working with carol burnett and then there's a comic out of the midwest uh, Jeffrey
1: Katzenberg came to me and he goes,
0: Jeffrey Katzenberg at the time was, uh, was working at Disney and, uh,
1: probably the best executive I've ever worked with in my life.
0: And of course now, uh, uh one of the tri, uh, I'll say the tri stars of, uh, DreamWorks. Oh, he
1: was great. And what I loved about Jeffrey is he, he always told you the straight shit. He would, you go, you're not going to like to hear this buddy, but sit down. We're not going to do that. I. Right. And I so appreciated that as opposed to here where everyone yeses you to death and nothing gets done. But he came to me and he says, Gene Blythe has found the great Gene Blythe, who you mentioned, has found this stand up comedian. And I said, no. (laughs) And he says, I didn't even tell you. who." He goes, no, it's a stand up. I said, no, I said, I'm not going to do this again. And Jeffrey came to me probably three times and said, I I want you to sit down with Tim Allen. And I said, no, I'm not going to work with another stand up. And finally, you see how
0: comedians can ruin
1: it for everybody. (laughs) And finally, Jeffrey goes, look, I'm not asking you to marry the guy. I'm asking you to walk across the lot and go have lunch with him. And I said, all right. And I think it was uh, David and I went and had lunch with him, or I can't remember if it was David or Carmen. And, and, And Tim sat down. I also found out after the fact they had shopped him to almost everyone on the lot before they came to me, but everyone wanted Tim. I think somebody pitched to Tim, you're going to be in an RB traveling around the country with your wife and kids. And and Tim, to his credit, said no. So I sit down at this lunch, and Tim and I looked at each other, and we started talking.
0: And again, Tim was just a, a journeyman stand-up comedian who had actually spend time in jail Um and um, try clearing a person who's been in jail now for television or film, but uh, and he done a Showtime special, which I believe was entitled "Men Are Pigs." Men are pigs. And he had this incredible point of view, uh, and and so that's how he got the attention to the showcase at the Improv. I believe he... Uh, um,
1: What's the festival in Canada? And where he, the Montreal saw, Just mantra. for Laughs Festival yeah. where Gene Blay right. saw
0: him. So uh, keep going.
1: So I sit down with Tim and I go, wait, here's a guy from the Midwest. He's from a big family. We started telling stories about our crazy brothers and how we grew up. We started swapping stories about our wives. Does your wife drive you crazy when she does this? And literally by the end of the lunch. The, the, this was like a Vulcan mind meld. I mean, it was like I, a double here. We were laughing about the same things. And I. this is, again, the truth. I got up and walking back to um, our offices, I turned to David. I said, if we do this, I said, this will be a top 10 show. I said, I have no doubt about it. And I said, and if we do it right, everybody in America will be grunting. Because that was his whole stand up men are pigs <laughs> and all this.
0: Now, here is a businessman. Again, this is what I have to ask yeah. you because I think this is important. You you don't believe that if you had c- collaborated with Roseanne and given her the creative by credit with you from the beginning that it would have changed. And I do not believe that it would have changed. I believe it would have been the same deal. No, because she fired her happened. manager, That's she, right, fired her she fired her her ex-husband. But everyone. now you're meeting with one of the nicest right. guys in the show business, right. Tim Allen. And he's got the strongest point of view of probably any comedian of the last 10 years. And he meets with you, and now you have a chance to change that and say, you know what, let's write this together, but you don't do it. You do it, and and it works. You create the show yourself. You take the creative by yourself. It's based on the stand-up, and you're there the whole time, and it's a wonderful relationship. But you could have easily
1: given him that thing, and you didn't. Why didn't you? It was more Disney than us. It was never even brought up from Disney. If Disney had said the only way this is going to happen, I would have said yes. It was just—it was never even an issue. Disney came to me and said, "This is how it's going to work." This... Got it. Understood. Yeah. So Jeffrey came and said, "Here's what's going to happen. Here's your talent. You guys are going to create a series, and we're going to plug this talent in." So it was. And, a, lo- and a
0: lot up. of time also, it 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 did happen that way, and by the studio or the network because they saw examples of happen like Roseanne and people going off the rails and are like, if we give these people too much power, they're going to take over. And especially you look at Carsey Warner, you know, they were in a situation every time somebody was involved in creating a show, they weren't even allowed on the set. I mean, Marcy and Tom weren't even allowed on the set of Roseanne after a while and, right. and, and, and a few of their shows and they were the greatest executives of the time. So, Home Improvement, the pilot go is... Do you know that it's... Uh, oh,
1: no question. You knew in, instantly.
0: And it was number one within how many episodes?
1: Six or so, <laughs> I think. Yeah.
0: Incredible. Okay. So, um, I want to ask you just a few other things, and then we're going to ride off on the sunset. I... I I I don't want to talk about Buddies that that much, but I want you to just say what you wanted to say about it. I I want
1: to tell you something, because someone called me. Someone's writing a book about Dave Chappelle, and they called me, uh, this uh, reporter in New York, and it started triggering all these old memories. Here's, Here's what kept me up for two years after Buddies. Kept you up for two years? I knew something was inherently wrong with Buddies, and unfortunately, Jim Brewer was the scapegoat because the network and the studio comes and goes, it's got to be casting. It wasn't casting. It was me. I made a crucial mistake. And it wasn't till six months after the show was canceled, I'm sitting with Carmen and David, and we're going, fuck, we, we messed this up. How did we mess it up? And we kept talking about it. I said, something was inherently wrong. And Carmen was the one who identified it. And he goes, here, when we talk, what is the core relationship? Think about this for buddies. Dave Chappelle and Brewer were best friends. Our concept for that series was they had been best friends since they were five years old. They didn't have an issue with race. Everyone else did. That's wrong. That's absolutely wrong because they've already worked out all of their issues. Conflict and frustration creates comedy. So what did we do? We had two guys who didn't have a problem with it. Who had a problem with it? Judith Ivey, Richard Roundtree. All the extreme points of view went to your secondary characters, and your two leads became your straight guys. Carmen turned to me and he says, You know what we should have done? He said, Think about this. If Dave Chappelle had grown up in a black neighborhood in Detroit and had only seen three white people in his life, and Jim Brewer moved in from Bent Prong, Minnesota, where there was maybe one Indian guy at a deli, and now they're thrown together, all of the stand-up that Dave Chappelle does about black people and white people at the movie, he says, and these two people, now, every episode is a discovery. White people eat that? That's the way black people go to a movie. Everything is a discovery, and the core relationship is your two guys. And afterwards, I went, fuck, we really, we, and we kept straining. We kept straining on that show. And again, if the concept isn't right, if the inherent drive, because you always have to ask, what's going to drive 100 episodes, your premise statement for home improvement, give you an example. People go, oh, that's funny because Tim grunted and because uh, uh, he blew up shit, right? No. David and Carmen and I took six months. We kept pounding away. We knew Tim was going to be funny. We knew he was going to wear a tool belt and grunt. People go, oh, that's about more power. No, it's not about more power. Do you know what the controlling idea of home improvement was? The premise statement that drove 201 episodes? Men and women should never ever live together (laughs) but they do and we consciously looked at each other and said every episode is going to be filtered through the prison of masculine and feminine so think about it the icing on the cake the rosettas on the on the icing were tools and blowing up toasters what drove 201 episodes is don't is Uh, you know, we're going to make pancakes. I'll get my blowtorch. No, I'm going to set the table so the boys learn how to do napkins, use their napkins. Every, whose house is it? Who, who, you know, every single episode, if you watch it, is driven by the premise, men men and women should not live together, but they do. And that's what we explored every single episode for 201 episodes. That's what drove that. Buddies, you have two guys who have been best friends forever. They have no problems with each other and they really like each other. How in God's name, and I didn't see it at the time, how in God's name can you drive to 100 episodes with that? If we had flipped that or had the two of them, so we had to create stories where they were always battling outside elements and and they were kind of battling it together. Well, who's your point of view character? Was it Jim Brewer or was it Dave Chappelle? Well, it's kind of both because they're buddies. No. Who is your point of view character? How are we seeing this world? Through Cosby, you are seeing the world through. I live with brain-dead children. Through Tim, everything could be made better with power. And that's, so it wasn't Jim Brewer's fault. And God, you broke my heart telling me that story because I hadn't heard it with his family there and everything. I just, I, I was sweating sitting here.
0: Well, I don't want you but, to sweat. No, so he's a
1: good guy, and he was the scapegoat, and we we blew it in the concept.
0: He was a scapegoat. That's that's a really honorable thing you said. So let's uh, we're gonna close up this uh, podcast with what I like to call holy shit moments. <laughs> uh, things that I think uh, you can share with uh, our audience. A uh, first question is: What's your biggest disappointment in your career?
1: Uh, honestly, I think it was buddies because we had, as you said, more advertising, more studio weight behind it. And this isn't an excuse. We were so busy with home improvement. We were so busy keeping that show afloat, that, and we had, and people even turned to me to this day and say, you had Dave Chappelle. And I said, yeah, that's before Dave Chappelle became Dave Chappelle, but still we had Dave Chappelle and and that that was my biggest disappointment. Other things, we rushed in development, other shows, or we made the wrong choice in casting on a movie. That happens, but that inherently should have worked, and we didn't. We didn't crack it. We didn't make it work.
0: Your proudest moment in this business?
1: Uh, well, I I think. I think it's home improvement, and, and the fact that you know it was shunned by the Emmys, but every year it won the People's Choice Award. And it was—it look, the show's made what two billion dollars? I don't know whatever it's made, and the fact that it was number one in Australia, in Germany, all around the world. And to think that show just hit a chord again because it's a universal chord—men and women, it's tools and all that. But there's something about that show that um, uh, it just played throughout the entire globe
0: craziest thing that's ever happened to you in the business, an isolated thing that would be the highlight chapter of your book, like it just, no one would ever believe that something happened within production, maybe with something you, 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 you worked on. It got on. so
1: crazy on Roseanne, this is a true story, she was so uh, extreme, I'll be careful with my language here, she was very extreme in her opinion. That, and we worked every weekend, and we went to the security guard at the gate, and we said, if she shows up, warn us, because we're on lockdown, because we were sincerely thought she might come onto the lot and shoot us all to death. And so, honestly, I told the security, I said, if she comes on, let us know, we have a contingency plan, we can lock off these doors, and we might be able to escape before she comes here and kills us all.
0: Holy shit. That is a holy shit moment. (laughs) All right. Lastly, I want you to, from a man with humble beginnings, a studio apartment, to creating three shows that went to syndication, produced a movie with Mel Gibson that probably made, God knows, $300 million worldwide. So what advice do you have for A young artist, whether they be a comedian or they be a sketch performer or a playwright or a writer, what do they need to do to go from that studio apartment with no hope to writing that list out saying, I'm going to be creating this and going through and executing their dreams and getting to the point where you are at this point in time?
1: Define your worldview. Ask yourself on a daily basis. Why am I telling stories? What is my intent? What, what do I want to do as a storyteller? Because if not, you're just going to be a leaf in the wind. Oh, if they want me to write uh, penguins tap dancing? I can write that. Oh, they want clowns on a roof? I can do that. No. Who are you? What is your inherent soul value? Who, what do you value in life? What's important to you? How do you view the world? How do you see the world? What do you believe in and infuse everything you do with that very personal, deep, s- specific worldview. And then you find your own voice as opposed to, I can, oh, I can be this, I can be that. And I watch people and they go, oh, yeah, we've got a great idea for a show. It's in an office and they all crack jokes. No. I have a friend who's a novelist who always asks when I'm working on something, he never asks, what is this about? He goes, what do you want your story to do? Home Improvement, David and Carmen and I wrote it out. We said we want to celebrate an American family and specifically an American marriage. That's what we want to do. We want to celebrate that. And so with and and with buddies, we thought we were going to be exposing racism and all that. But our premise was wrong. So anyway, back to your question. Honestly, ask yourself, what do I believe in? What's my worldview? Uh, why am I telling this story? What's, what is the intent behind my storytelling? And whether it's a one-act play or a half-hour sitcom or a two-hour movie or a three-hour Broadway musical, why are we telling this story? What do we want this story to do? That, to me, if you can define that for yourself as a writer, as a show creator, as a storyteller, then, then that'll drive you, as it has for me, 30-plus years.
0: It's incredible stories. Uh, you're an incredible man, and uh, I am so honored to have you here. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you. It was great. And as always, you're listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz, me. If you like the show, please tell all your friends, and if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. <laughs>
1: They say it's to glory. I'll scream your name. I'll put you on shoulders. I'll walk you to fame. You get all the money. Drive that fancy car. All the people love you. Cause you're going for life is for the dreamer. They have about to gain It's never quite over So it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune